Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org. Or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing good. I would like to, I'm doing great. I'd like to congratulate you on your mayor. Mm, thank you. He's uh, cracktastic. I've heard good things. And the best part was his argument was not, uh, really shouldn't have done that crack. It was, well, I guess I shouldn't have been so blackout drunk that I tried crack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that he, uh, he, he said to the reporters, he's like, yeah, you know that question you asked me back in, I don't know, February? Why don't you try that one again? Hmm. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't really know what he was thinking on that one. He was thinking... Oh, boy, crack! <laughs> the, the jig's up. Hmm. Uh, for anyone who's not entirely clear on this one, uh, apparently the, the mayor of Toronto... Mm-hmm. The mayor of Toronto has been caught doing crack. Well, there's a video of him allegedly smoking crack. And I guess he just wanted to remove any sort of doubt whatsoever. By saying, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't allegedly. That was definitely his, me smoking crack. In his defense, he was so drunk, he didn't know where he was when he did it. Mm. Acceptable, and, I guess. And he apologized profusely, and he said, I think in his words were, and that's about all I can do. Pretty much. A.K.A. not step down as mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else so is So speaking news? about crack. <laughs> <laughs> how'd, your, how'd your Halloween go? Yeah, it was good. Those kids, they like the candy. They're like candy addicts. Huh. Um, last time I spoke with you over Skype, you were eating whatever candy you could find of theirs. Yeah, that's. Uh, well, I figure, you know, I helped keep them safe. I deserve some protection candy. <laughs> Is that your cut? Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Um, I guess it also makes sense to take advantage of them while they're still so young that they're just really bad at hiding things. They're not in the hoarding mentality yet. Mm. How was your Halloween? My Halloween was very chill. Uh, I hung out with one of my buddies. It was his birthday. Mm. So I did that. That was fun. Did he dress up? No, we hung out after Halloween. Uh, His birthday was on the 4th? I want to say the 4th. No. 2nd. Whatever. (laughs) It was on the Saturday. Okay. So, Max, have you got any feedback or follow-up before we get started? Uh, Yeah, actually, there's one thing that I wanted to follow up with is uh, somehow when we were talking about uh, worms last episode, I got the first worm completely wrong. I I think I called him Tim Morris because it's close to somebody's name who I work with. Uh, It's actually Robert Morris, and I think I'd... Stated that it was RPC that he used um, to actually go and connect to a whole bunch of other systems. 
that's also inaccurate. It was a whole bunch of other uh, Unix known vulnerable services at the time, such as the finger daemon, which uh, allows you to remotely query who's connected to a PC and who whose uh, records are known on the PC. Send mail, which is the actual email uh, daemon on the box, daemon meaning the service that's running it, um, and some other stuff too. I don't know. I just I blame it on the cold that I was having. So what do you think about uh, computers and security? Do you, do you like security? Yeah, I like I like computers. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So last week we spoke about bad guys. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. We touched we touched on some surfaces. We, we touched some bad guys. Some surfaces? Wow. So it's like a Microsoft uh, uh, podcast. Yeah, right on their surfaces. Yeah, so what uh, I don't know what uh, what, what we're going to talk about this week. What you don't know? <laughs> of course not. I didn't read the notes beforehand. Um, I was thinking that we should probably uh, try and elaborate a little bit on uh, passwords. Okay. I kind of liked the idea that we had last week with the passwords, um, where we were talking about how ineffective they can be. Yeah, that kind of makes me think, though, the is what we could say about making a password, you know, We've covered all the ways that you can circumvent passwords, but let's just, I guess, assume that that the core integrity of the password system is intact and, you know, how to make a good password. Going on again with what we said last week about, you know, deterrence. One of the things that we, we touched on was the one of the surfaces upon which we touched was uh, if your password is, you know, ridiculously easy, it's just going to be broken. So even if you've got ways to circumvent passwords, which is inevitable and is going to happen, then at the very least, you want to try and give yourself whatever kind of fighting chance you can you can have, no? Definitely. Definitely. And you look around and there's other techniques that people have introduced over the years and are becoming popular now, like uh, the iPhone's fingerprint reader or like Google's venture into that couple years ago where they're doing face recognition to unlock their phones um you know those are biometrics bio being like biology and metrics being something you measure so there's the concept of biometrics it's just they're like a password you know you can spoof the person you can you can pretend that you're them by knowing the system well enough to bypass it but so now, realistically, with this, I don't know, this slow moving towards uh, biometrics, biometry, is that a word? I don't think so. I think, I think it will be. I think biology is a word. I think biometry is now a word. So when you're, well, is not biometrics then just the study of biometry? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. There's uh, such a discipline in science. Edit time insert. Matt is right. Biometry is a word. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines biometry as the statistical analysis of biological observations and phenomena. I'm dumb. Back to our show. Huh. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that's more secure than, uh, than passwords? Nope. I mean, it's got to be just as circumventable. Is it not just replacing 
the idea of a password. It is. And I really think that that's the problem is a password is just, you know, something you know and has to be represented in a computer. And a biometric signature is pretty much the same thing. It's a, this is how I'm capturing the uniqueness of a person. And therefore, um, I'm going to store it this way. And I'm going to read it this way with a reasonable amount of vaguity that, so, yeah, vaguity that somebody could, uh, could impersonate me. If biometry is not a word, then vaguity doesn't get to be a word. Come on. Vagueness? Vagaries? Vagaries. Sure, that sounds good. I'll take, I'll take either. I'll take biometry, though. You can have vaguity. Um, vaguity, vaguity, vaguity. Still not a word. Well, so there's, I mean, there's, uh, isn't this essentially just taking some sort of pattern, some sort of input from your body and then just translating it into like another series of numbers, at least at the, uh, the most basic form of the level at which we're doing it currently. Yeah. So I guess taking a step back, um, the whole point of a biometric is being able to measure a physical attribute of somebody and saying that this measurement that I've taken has enough uniqueness that it would um, pretty much point to a single individual. And if you can combine it with like a username and use the biometric as a password, then it's kind of, you know, you've already identified yourself as who you say you are. And the biometric is the, do you, does it actually pass muster? Do I unlock this account based on um, the, the biometric signature that I'm being presented with? How much do you know about biometrics? I know um, kind of how to bypass them. and not to, not to put you on the spot, but just sort of as a general rule. Like, for instance, is this something that uh, I should read up on before we go into it too much? Um, so I've never designed a biometric system to authenticate people before, but I have done research into you know, how, how it gets implemented correctly, what the shortcomings are. So I do know that like two twins would have a different biometric signature, even though they're like identical twins, um, and how the points of measurement are. Uh, so like there's, um, keyboard readers that will, you swipe your finger across and it's like a little light that reads, um, your fingerprint as it tracks across and it, like it's basically a camera that reads it and it puts it together. And there's so much definition in a camera. Back in the day, they, they weren't as high of a pixel count as they are now. And so it'll take that image. Um, and if you just go up to a photocopier, put your finger there and photocopy your finger, if with a high enough resolution, you could just wipe that down and have the reader read your fingerprint and say, okay, this is who they say they are. Well, it's not actually your real finger. So from what I understand, one of the main things that the biometric scanners are doing is they read the, uh, for anyone who knows anything about fingerprints, there's loops and there's whorls and each fingerprint is supposed to have a separate, uh, an individual or unique pattern on it. And those patterns are broken into various 
space shape forms. And so then it's supposed to read the loops and the whirls and the uh, measure the depth in them to get uh, the sort of individuality of each person's fingerprint. And then what it does is by that, it digitizes that information as effectively by picking out the specific things that it always looks for. It transfers that into a string and then matches that string up against the string that it has on file for your fingerprint string based on those same uh, pieces of information. Is that maybe true? No, that is true. <clears throat> what it'll okay, do. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it'll take a representation of the image that it sees. It'll pick out the key points. It'll define that in a set of metadata, which is the data that describes data. And it'll say, okay, so for this section of the fingerprint, it's represented by this X, Y, and Z axis for say, right? And it'll, it'll plot those characteristics and it'll have a whole bunch of these different characteristics jumbled together in this consecutive string that makes up the signature. And it'll store that signature, hopefully encrypted, so somebody can't just read it and then repeat it. And so then presumably when you're using something like uh, the iPhone, which now has the fingerprint scanner built into it, one of the first things that it gets you to do when you are signing up for or registering your fingerprint with it is have you scan multiple times. I don't know specifically which part of the button is in actuality the fingerprint scanner because I haven't looked at it too much. But I know that when you are registering for it, you're supposed to scan multiple times because if you just sort of touch it in the wrong way and it doesn't recognize any of the parts of the fingerprint, that's going to be pretty useless to you. So you have to be able to get a big enough sample. So presumably then when you touch, is it not just going to try and pick out of a giant uh, group of, of various pieces of information that it's picked, try and match enough points from this, again, digital string of information that it has garnered from your fingerprint to be able to pick and you don't have to give the exact same part every single time? Yeah, it will do a st statistical anomaly detection where it'll say, okay, this is you know roughly 80% correct in its uniqueness characteristics at these points that you know statistically somebody else couldn't have this many things be correct and it'd still be the right person. So it'll have, um, a, the term is false positive versus false negative, right? So false positive is... You know, if you came and touched my phone, if I had the iPhone 5S and it unlocked for you, right, that would be a false positive count. If I went to unlock my own phone with my fingerprint and it didn't unlock it for me, that would be a false negative, right? So it's denying me being the negative part falsely. And for you, it would be allowing you, which is the positive part, falsely. Hmm. So one of the things that I'd heard about this is that... um because it actually measures both the peaks and the valleys in your fingerprint, that uh, a photocopy, regardless of how high resolution, wouldn't actually work. So one of the things that I've heard that um, malicious people have been doing for fun is they've been uh, lifting fingerprints from people and then taking that data and putting it into a 3D printer 
and then 3D printing people's fingerprints, which has allegedly been working. So they take a very high-definition photo of the fingerprint, and then they transpose it backwards so that they can mold something out of it. And then they, yeah, they print out basically like a, a fake piece of skin that would go over yours with a, with a high enough detail that the sensor, however that works, um, be it a, a picture being taken or um, some sort of ridge detector. I, I'm not quite sure how it works on the iPhone. Um, but it's high enough resolution so that it actually detects it. And then it also does things like detect moisture and heat to be able to say, yes, this is not just somebody putting a photocopy against it. There's actually like the characteristics of what a, a live human there. Right. And then it'll, you know, unlock it if, if it passes those checks. So still, regardless of all of that, even though it is in fact, um, using your fingerprint, all it's doing is it's just transposing your fingerprint into some string of letters and numbers that it recognizes. Granted, it can be significantly more complex and you have the benefit of never actually knowing that string. But I mean, if you have a fingerprint and someone needs to use it, there are ways. Right. So conceivable attacks against this is, you know, the one that we just described where you take a picture of a fingerprint, you lift a fingerprint, you do a high enough resolution copy and print it out and you can just spoof the fingerprint of another individual. So that's akin to, um, I don't want to say brute force. That's not the right word. It, it, and it's, it's just an akin to, um, you know, being able to guess the right password. If you have, if you get the right characteristics together to spoof it, but I mean, it's kind of far-fetched. Sure, it worked for like a spy agency, but it's not something that you'd be able to necessarily do right with a stolen phone if you're, you know, a criminal. One of the other things that a lot of people were talking about as kind of a worry or kind of a concern in a situation like that is that, you know, uh, if it got to the point that this device was so desirable that people would not only steal the device but they would also take the finger necessary to unlock it right so that's actually a case that happened i don't know about 10 years back somebody had this um, very expensive car that would start by a fingerprint um and i I think it was jaguar or something i'll get my facts straight and put it in the show notes to for people that are interested in the actual story so yeah the, the guy was being taken advantage of and uh someone wanted to steal his car and he tried to start the car and it didn't work so he actually you know cut off the guy's finger and started the car with the guy's finger and just took it with him right um clearly not an ideal solution but so the the real reason that i brought up that all this is really doing is simply getting you another different string uh, and one that you don't necessarily have to remember it's still going to be subject to a lot of the same potential pitfalls as um, really as any kind of password situation. If you have a variety of passwords, you've got access to the actual machine that is uh, guarded by this, perhaps in the case of the iPhone, that's a little bit uh, moot, but 
if you have access to the computer itself, then presumably there's got to be a way to capture the input that is given when the computer is logged into. That's right. And so another conceivable attack is you understand um, the input mechanism that's measuring this and you find a way of bypassing the sensor and replaying the correct signature back to it. Right. The biometric signature, which we discussed earlier, is what I mean. But so this kind of can come back to just general passwords. Is there not better ways that we can create passwords that would make them more difficult? Like what is the, what is the solution that we could potentially use to get around passwords altogether? What other kind of login uh, tool, what other sort of idea can be used? So I'd, I'd even want to take a step back and say, what is the purpose of a password? That's a good question. In this case, um, I'm really just thinking of it as the initial access to the device itself. Being able to determine, again, going back to our other ideas, um, authorization levels, uh, who has permissions to do what. And so you're using your username and your password to authenticate yourself, to confirm that you have these permissions. Yes. So the purpose of the password is to say, I am who I say I am. And then then someone who uh, wants to pretend that they are me, you know, has these different things that they can do. They can try to pretend that they're me, right? So let's just stick with that, with horse blinders on. Someone wants to pretend that they're me they have to guess my password, right? That's say their first choice. So the password systems understand that there's this potential for attack, which we went through and termed the brute force attack before. So different password systems have different types of controls that can be put into place. The initial control is, okay, um, I'm going to allow someone to define how complicated they want their password to be. So I've seen systems that actually just take the password um, and only allow characters to be typed in. So, you know, the, the A through Z um, actual alpha characters is what I meant to say. So they'll take the, they'll only allow the A through Z and they'll allow maybe six different of these characters, alpha characters to be typed in. And it won't even care about case. It'll say, you know, just for user accessibility, I'm going to allow this, no matter which case you put it in, I'm just going to capture it. And and I will treat a capital A like a lowercase a. So it's case insensitive. So it's case insensitive, only allowing alphabetic, uh, alphabet characters. Right. And, you know, up to six. Yeah. Any more than six, forget it. That's too complex. Right. So you you can start guessing that these people are going to be entering in words, like a word or two words combined together to make up their password. Because basically that's the only option that's been given to them. But compound words, because you're not allowed spaces. Exactly. So to be able to come up with a, a set of these is probably pretty easy. And then they add more complexity by allowing the the definition between uppercase and lowercase and and numbers right so that allows for a much 
more varied amount of combinations that can occur. Right. So uppercase and lowercase is doubling, right? So instead of 26, we've got... uh, (laughs) Math on air. Let's do it. 52, right? Different variations per single character. And then you add numbers on top of that. So that's another 10. So 62 variants right there per character. And then the amount of characters that you allow to be captured, the amount of individual letter number combinations that you allow to be captured increases the complexity as well. So now if if somebody want if you give somebody the choice and they can choose however many characters they want to put in, say they choose eight characters, well that's exponentially more difficult than seven characters is, which is exponentially more difficult than six characters in. Because the number of permutations increases with each one by the sixty-two characters per times each individual or yeah to the nth power and being the number of characters in the in the password yep and then you allow special and power or nth degree you allow special characters to be captured in there like a an open bracket an exclamation mark a, a brace a semicolon you know, and and now you're up to the full anti character set, which is a possible 128 characters per thing on on a North American English style keyboard, like a QWERTY keyboard. You know, and and even greater than that, like 256 in a UTF-8 type character layout, which is usable wherever. Right. So now. Most of the places that I've dealt with recently have always had, like, they put on these unlimited restrictions, which kind of sounds as, as weird as it is. So you have to have between six to eight characters. You have to have at least one uppercase letter, at least one lowercase letter, and at least one number. Um. I haven't actually done any of the math for that, but I kind of feel like you're limiting the number of possibilities by doing that, but building a, a, a minimum um, complexity. Yes. So, so you've got like a greater complexity, but a lot fewer options. If the rigid limit is between six and eight characters, then... Definitely, that's the that's the worst part of the equation because now you've tossed out all of the zero to five options. So if somebody knows what the what the definition is, then they can customize their cracking efforts against what they know is going to work. So if right. I'm a user of the same computer system as you, and I know that the same rules apply to me as they do to you, I know how to define my brute force attempt engine and more often than not on things online they generally have to um have to advertise that have to put that written up there on the website so that it's clearer for the users who are trying to create a password so when they either try and create the password or when they visit the login or the registration site it's going to say between six to eight characters at least one letter at least one number all that kind of stuff and it allows the malicious people to have uh that frame that guideline from which they build the the specific cracking but it also 
like I I don't know because of the the math just how much complexity it adds versus how much uh how many options it removes. So it it definitely errs on the side of caution and and helps the password be more complex. So complexity is one component, right? That's the um that's the taking a brute force attempt and making it take longer. One of the things that we can do to help that is add more complexity, add the possibility of somebody to enter more characters, add somebody, add the ability for someone to mix up the type of characters that they can use, or even enforce it to know that, you know, someone's not just going to enter in letters, which is the reason why they say, you know, you have to have other things in there as well. Another method for, um, for protecting against brute force is what some old systems did. And I'm not quite sure why it was abandoned because it seems like a pretty good idea to me is that every login time, every login attempt, you make take a little bit longer. So first five attempts, you know, it's as fast as I can type it. After that, it'll back off for a little bit and it'll make it take a little bit. Um, it'll make me take a break to kind of think about it a little bit longer but it also protects the system from you know somebody doing this automated brute force thing that just keeps going against it. They still do that in a lot of iterations. Um, for instance, there are, and then this also sort of goes back to what you were saying before of other ways that they've increased the security on this. You have it so that uh, some of the sites have a minimum of three tries, or sorry, a maximum, pardon me, of three tries, before there's a timeout of, say, a half hour or greater. Other sites combat that uh, timeout because that just really frustrates people when there's a timeout by adding an extra layer on top of it. Um, these layers are things like uh, the CAPTCHAs. Uh, anyone who's played online has probably run into some site where uh, after entering a password, they get a thing that pops up and tells them they have to prove that they're human by typing in scrambled letters. Um, the letters used to be nowhere near as scrambled and difficult to read as they are now, because I'm pretty sure at this point I'm bordering on the edge of human. But they keep, um, they keep scrambling them, they keep warping them, they keep uh, mixing up the way that the letters are done, because that makes it a lot harder for, again, these people who are doing these brute force attacks to create a robot that can essentially just read what is written there and enter that in as part of the password entering process. Yeah, so I've seen places online that after three incorrect password attempts, they will now require you to put in uh, a CAPTCHA as well just to stop any future robotic attempts that aren't smart enough to look for CAPTCHAs. Now, there's a whole other thing about CAPTCHAs. Maybe we can get into that later. But um, so we've got the complexity, got the complexity of the password. We've got the um, timeout mechanism for systems to back off and make it take longer so that if someone is brute forcing it, it takes them longer to do. Um, there's also another dimension, which is the algorithm that the actual password system uses to store the credentials and how um, secure that is. 
So when we were discussing this last time, we were talking about if you and I have access to the same system, you could potentially log into the system and access the password repository there. And if it's a horribly designed system, it'll just be in clear text, meaning not encrypted, not obfuscated. You'll just see what my password is if you look at this password file. And even without access to the exact same machines, you can still run into this sort of issue and this sort of problem where if the password information or username information or user information is not uh, encrypted or is just in clear text, as you're saying, then it still can be compromised. And I'm sure that you've probably heard about that a bunch of times recently in the news where various websites uh, send out emails and they're like, okay, you have to change your username and password because our database has been uh, compromised. Right. So, which means that they weren't even storing it encrypted. They're just, they've got your credit card information and all that potentially. Some of them were. Not necessarily. Some of them, like it's more common to see um, passwords stored in clear text within databases and then somebody get hacked and then that uh, that clear text gets stolen and yes, your password has been divulged for that website. And most people use the same password multiple times. There's also the possibility that the website actually did something to protect the security of it being use some sort of uh, hopefully a hash algorithm, which we discussed last time, which is a mathematic computation that says, I'm not even going to store your password. I'm just going to store the equivalent mathematical sum of that calculation that I do to say all future calculations that I do on the password have to equate to the same sum. Right. The problem with that is someone who's capable of taking that, uh, that hash repository, just like the password file that we're talking about before they can run the same math against a, uh, the dictionary that they have or whatever, you know, randomized input that if they want to against it and then stop when it matches and spit out the answer and say, this was the, this is the same input that generates the same output. Therefore, this input is the password. Also in some generic systems, they have the same defaults set up for what math they actually run on them. Well, so that's that's the cryptographic. Or at least they did. So the hash, right, is going to always equate the same because it's always the same mathematical routine. So whether it's on your computer, whether it's on my computer, it's always going to end up with the same calculations. So how they circumvent that is they add something called a salt to the hash, right? And the salt is this randomized initialization vector it's it's this pre-bit to the math that it's going to do that is actually unique to the system so it's going to make the fact that what could exist on everybody's computer unique to my system so it adds adds this element of randomness this nonce of randomness it's called that um that at least makes it more difficult to do so maybe i don't know 10 years ago i found about found out about this thing called a rainbow table. And what a rainbow table is, 
is someone's figured out all of the possible hashes for say eight up to eight character passwords and they've recorded that and they say for the different types of systems so they say for an md5 hash i'm going to come up with this list this master database for passwords so whenever i hack into somebody and get the md5 hash for the account i just pop it against this thing and I know the answer of immediately. It's like a query into a database, which is a super fast thing to do. And you say, okay, this is the hash. And it spits out the answer of what the password is because it's already done all of that calculation on other systems beforehand to come up with this rainbow table for the hash. That's somewhat, that's thwarted by these, these salts because now it's no longer gonna be the static same value. That's pretty cool. But like we were discussing before, the various algorithms that are used have cryptographic problems to them. So back in the day when Windows NT4 came out, there was this thing called a Landman, which is a Microsoft custom hash routine that they created. And they said, what we're going to do is we're actually going to split the password, no matter how long it is, we're going to take the first seven characters that somebody types in. We're going to ignore uppercase and lowercase. We're not going to allow special characters. And we're going to store that in one half of the hash. And then we're going to do the same thing with the second part up, up to 14 characters, right? So it's got seven in one, seven in another. Anything more than that, and it's just it's going to do something funky that's not repeatable on other systems. So people have figured out most people's passwords is less than 14 characters because people don't want to type long strings of stuff, especially, you know, back in the day. And so they, they came out with the, and, and the, the math that was behind it wasn't an intensive math routine that took a lot of time to accomplish. They wanted it to be fast. And hashes pretty much are always fast to calculate. And back in the day, it wasn't the computers weren't as fast as they are now. But but regardless, it splits the password into these two halves. So if you even if you had an eight character password, you'd be able to crack that last character pretty much instantly. And then the first seven characters you could chunk away on, but because eight is exponentially more complex than seven, right? We're only dealing with a maximum complexity of the seven characters, which doesn't actually take that long to attack when you're only talking about 36 different possibilities. Right. Per character. So does this leave us with any chance for getting a password that's good? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. So, so they replaced that with something else that's called NTLM. And... NTLM is a better algorithm, but it's still, it's unsalted. So it still had that problem where you could repeat the same combination on any machine. And then they came up with NTLM2, which is salted based on information unique to the computer that you're using it from, which makes it much better. Now, in a Windows world, 
in a Windows enterprise, you have multiple computers communicating with each other, and they use either this landman hash or NTLM version one or NTLM version two to authenticate against each other to gain access to the resources on the other machine that they're allowed to. So if I have a shared drive on my Windows PC and I want to share it with Tom, but not Jerry, I will set it in such a way that, you know, it, it will only authenticate Tom and I have a method for uniquely identifying Tom. Or we're part of an enterprise where Tom only has one password that works against any machine there in an Active Directory sort of sense. The hash gets sent across. I compare it with what I know is the good value. And I get an answer of yes, this password is correct or no, this password is incorrect. And then I relay that information back and either grant them access or don't grant them access. So even though someone might be using NTLM v2, right, which has that salting to, to that component, if I capture somebody's authentication credential, I can actually replay that to somebody else. Say we're in this Active Directory sense, right? And say I'm allowing NTLM version one, whatever. I can, I can capture the hash and I can pass the hash. It's the attack's called pass the hash. And I can just replay that um, message component if as long as everything else in the structure of the protocol that we're establishing the connection with is correct, I could authenticate against this other system. By effectively, in this case, the hash is just the, uh, how best to say this, the hash is essentially just an encrypted password, except that at this point, they're not even using the password, they're just using the encrypted version, which is the hash. And so all they do is, they send you the hash so that you, he, uh, whomever it is can get access to the content on your drive. You're then capturing that and passing that on, pretending to be them. Right? Yep, exactly right. So this is a much more difficult scenario to be in. So it's not all woe is me and the, the world is terrible. But it, it presupposes that I've been compromised already. For someone to gain access to that critical part of memory where they can see what my hash is, then it's pretty much game over across the network, right? But when people communicate for a network share, there is a, a form of protection that goes across the top of this layer, which makes it so that you can't just be sniffing on the wire and intercepting every message that goes across and be able to replay that same message, right? It's it's actually with deeper within the message, down kind of at the granular level on the operating system itself even, um, you can capture that credential and then replay it across. So it's not effectively the same as being able to copy and paste it in wherever their username and password is required. Right. It's you need to already have compromised someone's machine to gain access to this section of the memory or whatever. And you need to be able to uh, reform a connection on behalf of that individual within the same environment. Right. Because, you know, hopefully it's salted and the, that component is unique. 
So there's other things that people have done to make things more complicated. And one of the great ones is Kerberos. And Kerberos is an authentication protocol that actually challenges uh, an individual and they're not sending their credentials across. They're authenticating to their local machine. That local machine participates in this greater Kerberos community, basically, and it gets a ticket. And this ticket is what it uses for further communication. And it wants to authenticate against another repository. And they both talk to the, you know, the mama system. And it says, hey, is he allowed to talk to me? Um, he's got this ticket. Is this the right ticket? And so it it creates this, this authentication by a peer trusted system that helps prove the identity of somebody else. And there is a pass the ticket problem with Kerberos, but I think it's even more difficult than the pass the hash component as well. I think it you might have to compromise the that mama system, the trusted one. I'm not totally sure how it works, but I think that's the case. And this is presumably the the mama system is presumably like distributed computing. Um, so in a Windows world, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, you have an active directory domain, which is um, how to describe it. it. It's it's the common authentication that works across an enterprise. It's like how uh, almost how like Windows for work groups works, where you have like a, a work group that everybody participates in. But even more than that, like the credentials that you have aren't by computer um, so much as for everybody together. There is still by the computer passwords as well, just in case something wrong happens to that domain. But every computer that's a participant of the domain believes that the accounts that are going to be part of that domain as well, or another trusted domain. Anyways, it gets pretty complicated, but it's, it's, an umbrella that everybody's underneath and they kind of speak the same language and they all go back to the same mommy system and the mommy system says, yes, you can have access to this. Yes, you're authenticated correctly or no, you're not. And it controls it at a central place. So even if I hack into somebody's computer, I can't gain access to their mommy system password if it's handled correctly, hmm. AKA using Kerberos. That's pretty cool. Yes, it is. And it's also very powerful. Once you start getting into this enterprise setting, you're no longer reliant on every single computer having implemented security in a good way. There's this concept called policies that apply. So you can actually say, as an administrator for the domain, I'm going to specify what every person has to have as password complexity. I'm going to specify what software can't run on PCs or what can. I'm going to specify how to present these workstations to people, what critical um, Internet Explorer settings are set, all these different amazing security considerations are set within the, the domain in policies that are enforced down across different maybe organizational units 
um, in an enterprise. So if you work for accounting, maybe you'll have a policy set against you, or maybe we all have the same policy, or maybe we all have the same policy, but this special group gets a, an exemption from a certain component of it. You know, it's, it's pretty cool and very, very powerful. And that is why so many enterprises are stuck on IE, Internet Explorer, because that's one of the only browsers that you can control centrally through this central policy. It's very powerful. I wish that Chrome or Firefox allowed for the centralized management of these policies so that you can enforce things like when you close your browser, you're going to erase all of your cache or whatnot. You know, they just, they don't have it. It's just too bad that they actually work. Yeah, that's that's the downside, right? Is that the stuff that that's dynamic and has that freedom? Yeah, it's kind of not allowed in an enterprise or many enterprises because you can't control the end-to-end lifecycle of it. Although, to be fair, Internet Explorer is pretty fantastic. Promotional considerations by this portion of the show have been brought to you by Microsoft. Use Bing <laughs> for all your search needs. None of that is serious, but yeah. None of that is um, true, but it would be awesome. So back to the password thing. So passwords, you know, they provide a value. It's something that you know that you can prove yourself with. Or there's the biometric part, which is, you know, something that you are. There's another component that can be used too, which is something that you have. So um, there's this smart card that you could put into your computer, not this smart card. There are many different implementations of smart cards you can put into your computer and it's basically an um, implementation much like a password, right? So not unlike a if key you have for a this, car. If you, yeah, exactly. If you have this special thing, then you can plug it in and it will unlock your computer and allow you to do stuff. Dongle. My name is Werner Brandis. My voice is my passport. Verify me. Well, that that would be biometric. So that's something that you are. Do you remember the movie? Ha- uh, the movie Sneakers. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. So that's biometric, though, right? And yeah. that was bypassable by a recording. Yeah. So everything has a flaw, and how do you deal with these flaws? Keys, dongles, things like that. Third-party uh, attachments can be duplicated or stolen. Or the whole routine requires a special program and that component can be compromised and circumvented. Right. You know, there's there's a bunch of different problems out there for something that you have being duplication or circumvention of that protection mechanism. But yeah, so h- how do we deal with these problems? For the most part, we just say it's good enough. For the stuff that's super critical, we say, you need to do more than one. It can't just be something that you know, because somebody might have guessed it, somebody might have captured something else. We need to combine that with maybe something that you have. So uh, w- when you authenticate against an enterprise and have, ooh, there's a whole other topic here that I haven't covered that I'm just about to step in. But, um, but there are these devices that have these numbers that get generated on them based on the amount of time that it is. So every minute it'll come up with a new number. So popular online video game has this um, 
the possibility of implementing this thing in software on your smartphone or something you download onto your computer where um, it'll come up with this random number that'll change every minute or two, right? And you have to have that right number in combination with your username and password with these things that you know to prove that this is not just a robot that has captured this and is replaying it. It is something that is manually being entered right now. PayPal has that as well. Yeah, and and other people have um, the concept of a digital certificate. So you have to have this digital certificate in combination with your username and password to prove that you are who you are. Right. So that's the something that you have with something that you know. So the more of these things that you combine together, the more of a pain it is to actually implement it. And there's still problems with security around the capture of these unique problems and combining them together. But the likelihood just goes way down, right? When you start adding these different factors together. Right. So nothing's flawless. You know, that's the world that we live in. But we make it difficult enough for the critical systems to allow access to, say, my work environment from my home. So the, by, by using these multiple trusted systems together. Or, you know, clients of banks to the banks themselves, if they require this high level of security for doing their like multi-million dollars of trades or whatever, right? It's, if it means that much to you, you will implement the right security to assure that it's you doing the transaction, that it's you who's gaining access to the system. And, you know, if I walk away from my computer, it'll lock. It's another protection mechanism that needs to, to be considered. NFC. Sure. Um, I like that idea. So, I mean, there's other, there's really bad implementations of people doing stuff like that where they'll have like a little dongle on them. And if they get far enough from the computer to lock on them, but then somebody just has to capture that radio seek. Yeah. Anyways, like I said, everything has a weakness to it for somebody who's persistent enough to want to break into it. But every little bit helps as long as it makes sense. Remember the whole amount of thing that we said before, the more lines of code, the more complexity in the system, the more difficult it is uh, to do securely because there's bugs that enter into this. There's new um, creases that somebody can slip into to gain access to systems. So you really want to do it right uh, (laughs) the first time with the least amount of lines of code possible, but allow for complexity to be added where... Uh, the requirements are there. There's also a really delicate balance of getting it to the point where people will still use it. Yeah, so convenience is another big factor, right? That's why we allow short passwords. Not because it's hard for computers to store long passwords, but because people get upset at typing in like a 35-character password and not realizing that they mistyped something along the way and having to try again and again and again, right? It's, it's just I am the very model of a modern major general. I'm information vegetable. <laughs> now I gotta delete the entire thing. Make one mistake on the last letter of your password and you'll always delete the whole thing. That's what I was Pretty do. much. 
Yep. No, no, it's uh, if I get confused, I'm like, oh, I made a mistake. Two or three character, ah, whatever. It's faster just to wipe it all out and try again. Um, so so there's that component, right? But the, also the delicate balance of um, between giving it lip service to give people the impression that they're secure versus actually making them secure. Right, because there's all these other methods to bypass it. So I had this really smart cryptography guy um, who I worked with a while ago when we were coming up with, you know, what is the right amount of length of a password? And we were doing these calculations based on, you know, it'll take a PC this long to crack an NTLM v2 password if it's this many characters. But if we increase the complexity um, by another sub uh, couple of characters, then it makes it basically insolvable for the infinite amount of time that there is for the universe, right? And then we're like, okay, but really is a, you know, Pentium 2, like 400 megahertz CPU, the, you know, the bar that we need to measure ourselves against because speeds keep increasing. Then uh, I was introduced to something called an FPGA, which is a field programmable gate array, which is like a logic board that instead of soldering these things in, um, it's it's something you flash the program onto this board. It reallocates the structure dynamically. It's super cool, um, but it it creates a logic board pretty much on demand that'll just run through this routine super crazy fast. And then that made you know the time to crack the password. Uh, easier. So now we're in the the hundred year range for mean time to crack, right? I feel like anyone who is listening that is still beginner level was just floored by that sentence because I don't know exactly how much of it I understood. I I get what you mean. So suffice to say that there's a device that you've been introduced to that effectively has a way to programmably or programmatically be rewritten to re-divert the way that the board itself functions into some sort of more advanced hardware? So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, circuitry design. You have these things mapped out, these logic gates that we talked about beforehand, but it's basically an Etch-A-Sketch one. Well, you write it all out and you use it for what you need to do. And then when you're done with it, you can just take the thing and shake it and redesign a circuit onto it. And it automatically creates these, the linkages, the physical linkages in this board. It's just like this bizarre, amazing thing. And because it's all in hardware, it just happens so much faster. And it's this tiny thing. So the, you know, the, how far the electron has to go is smaller so it's faster and it's amazing these fpgas but never mind that because i found out something way cooler which is current video card processors have these things called like the nvidia one has something called the cuda core which is this floating point instruction unit which we talked about way before but um, it's like where an integer is a whole number a floating point number is any combination uh, with the decimal places, right? So you can do just much more fine-grained math and and factoring and whatnot. And so you can actually 
use a CUDA core to crack things pretty much as fast as these FPGAs can do. And now you start combining these things together, like how uh, how a um, PlayStation 3 has something like eight CUDA cores in it, right? So now you can start using a, a single system to divvy up the task eight times, which makes it, you know, if we're talking about 100 years to crack, now we're talking about an eighth of that time, right? So it's like 12 years to crack. And then, so, I, I don't know. Yes, no, maybe so. Okay. Um, and then you start clustering these machines together and splitting the tasks even further apart, right? And it's just like factoring it and it's just becoming easier and easier and faster and faster to do these things. So at the end of the day, I don't really know what protection, you know, a password can provide to somebody who's a dedicated attacker against it. I think versus a dedicated attack, there's always going to be pitfalls. And regardless of how many layers you pile on top, if your system is the one that they really need to get into, then the effort is going to be put in. Right. But the amount of money to actually crack somebody has gone from like spy agency to like a kid, you know, with a part-time job at McDonald's who wants to put together some of these systems that are being provided. Like now you can actually buy time on like an Amazon cloud service of just a bunch of CUDA cores. Hmm. And because CUDA cores, I mean, they do fantastic things for graphic processing too. So now we're talking about like this NVIDIA Shield thing where all of your processing for your graphics can be done dynamically out on the cloud and just delivered to you over the internet. This is this is the real world application for it. But if you want somebody, if somebody who understands the value of this rents, you know, an hour of time on these systems, and it say it costs them twenty bucks, which I think it probably costs them way less than that. But they could crack like any password. Well, I guess suffice to say, there's um, no security left in the world, and as such, this is the end of our podcast forever. The end. We have no point to going on from here. <laughs> Some kid on on his mom's PlayStation is totally gonna be hacks or ring. Um, no, I'm gonna I'll I'll delete that whole part. No, I I I think it's humorous, right? So, but this is the balance that we live within. So, my advice to people who are using passwords is really judge the value of the thing that you're connecting to and apply the appropriate amount of security if that's an option to you. So if you if you have a website that you just read the forums there, it's okay for the password to be password. If you're just stalking and, and your reputation's not online, if somebody hacks your computer and put in something stupid, who cares if the password's password, right? But if it's your online banking, then you want to make sure that it's as protected as you can make it so somebody can't abscond with your money the next time you go to a website and you're just trying to buy a t-shirt and they tell you that um in even in order to even browse before you can even start shopping no never mind buy something next time you go to a, a website and you want to look up the definition of a word and they tell you you need to sign in before you can even do that and you have to create a username and password uh by default i've got a password for garbage sites um and it is a password that i only use for disposable sites. 
And there's also various websites that do that for you, like bugmenot.com. Yep. You go to bugmenot.com, you search up the website that they're asking you to do this thing when you're trying to look up one thing and you'll probably never go to this website again. And people have created dummy username and accounts that you can simply use uh, effectively, disposably. They're not yours. You just use them to sign on to something where someone is trying to garner a user base. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, and then for the things that you do really care about, if you don't want to have to remember the password to every single site, because it gets complicated, like there's probably about 50 different sites that I have to remember passwords for. So I'm bound to reuse some sort of pattern to, to come up with, you know, um, a way for me to remember this. Another mechanism is there's really good tools out there that act as these password vaults. So it's got all of the encryption required to make this a, a safe repository for passwords. And you need one master password to unlock this program. And then you can have it generate these super complex, like no rhyme or reason to the structure of the randomized character that it outputs to use a site for and you say okay i'm going to this site show me the password cut and paste it erase that thing that i cut from my clipboard so just flush the flush the temporary storage where i had that in memory even and i've submitted that to the site i'm authenticated i never even really need to know what my password is as long as i have this this um, password repository that keeps it safe a perfect example of that is um, Windows Trojan Keylogger underscore 32.exe, which we'll have up on the website available for download. I see what you did there. <laughs> Again, trying to be humorous. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that's the only thing is... One other potential idea is change your password occasionally. Oh, right. That's a very good point. Um, so for the things that you connect to um, and that... You, that you need that security for if somebody has compromised a site where you're using the same password they can go around and try that password at other places so if you actually change your password even if it has been compromised say it takes them a month to crack that password right by that time you've been forced to change it and therefore the password that you had it set to is hopefully not a pattern that you reuse uh, on a later date and is now useless for sites of for useless sites feel free to reuse the same username and password type thing for sites of value i personally will try and use a completely different password from the other site of value if at any point i feel like any one site is compromised unless they're my useless sites using the useless username and password then i don't care because I use the useless one for the useless ones. Um, if it's a valuable site something or a valuable system or something that you actually have to access, use a different password for all of them, because this way, if you do that, and one of them is compromised, not all of them are compromised. It's only the one. And again, using the, the password vaults and password uh, keys and tools that, like Max was saying, um, those will keep you from necessarily having to juggle all of the individual passwords for the individual sites. Another really good value that it provides is 
it's now an inventory of the where you actually authenticate to. So if you ever find out that a site's been compromised, you know, even if you reuse the same password at different places, if you hear in the news that Facebook's passwords were compromised and you use the same Facebook password for your LinkedIn and for your other social media stuff, you can say, oh, that means I've got to change all of these. Facebook's passwords haven't been compromised as of right now. It's a hypothetical. That's a disclaimer. I know, hypothetically. It's just the CIA. Well, NSA reads everything. Um, yeah, good points. So the generation of the password is make it as complex as you can within the parameters that you're given. Make it as long as possible, as long as you can remember. Uh, for useless sites, use useless passwords. For important sites, try to use different either username and password combinations or uh, usernames, passwords. Try and keep the complexity as high as possible for those because in theory, whether other people are more insecure, your password will be harder to break. Again, you're working with what you have or what is available to you as a deterrent towards these things. So if I can get someone else's password, I'd use theirs instead of yours. Uh, what else? Uh, when you actually submit your password to a site, it would be very nice if that website had an SSL enabled, so it was HTTPS when it was transmitting your password across. If you're just sending it in the clear, then any eavesdropper can listen in. Also, again, an excellent, uh, an excellent point. Cool. So I think that we've got uh, a couple of tools to work with for that, even going so far as if you're using a biometric scanner, try and use someone else's hand. <laughs> it'll make it a lot harder for someone to steal your hand. <laughs> and it'll make it a lot harder for you to log in because you have to get that buddy back. See, that's why I can't understand. Like the iPhone thing. Hey, can you just grab me that phone? Oh, no, hold on. I'll have to finger the phone for you, which is now going to be a term for me as well. Um, all right. Other than that, anything, uh, any wrap up, any follow up? No, uh, just as always, we'd love to hear from you guys and see what you're thinking in this direction of this podcast. This is another one that was pretty well unstructured. Um, we knew generally we wanted to talk about passwords and that's about it. Um, so let us know what you think. If you feel that we're giving you uh, value for your money, for your time, then let us know at feedback at in-security.org. Yeah, you can visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, comments, and the show notes. And you can follow us on Twitter at InSecurityShow. Well, I think we have a good show for people, and I bid you a good week, good man. All right, you too. You have yourself a good one. Cheers. Thanks, bye.